Welcome to the Smart Talk series, Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in December of 2018. Our talk is hosted by Jeffrey Praviti and our guest, Ms. Colleen Waddell. Colleen earned her bachelor's degree from Wells College in economics and her master's from NYU. Ms. Waddell is a veteran financial regulator. She has held senior positions at Standard & Poor, Fitch, and Moody's, all of the big three financial ratings agencies. Her vast experience with municipal bond market gives her a wealth of knowledge on government debt's role within the economy. Together, we discussed how municipal bonds play into local development, how important property taxes are to state governments, and the impact a land value tax would have if it were implemented in real life. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. So to begin our conversation, let's talk about the municipal finance market, uh, give our viewers a background on it. So who issues municipal bonds and how do they go about issuing them? Well, let's start with what a municipal bond actually is, and that is it's a bond issued by some government, typically it, for our conversations in the United States, we'll frame mm -hmm. it here. Yep. Um, and since about the Revolutionary War, governments have sold debt to help finance infrastructure projects, capital projects. When I say governments, I'm using the term very expansively, cities, counties, states, school districts, um, special districts, special taxing districts, and then you move into the not-for-profit sector, so hospitals issue municipal bonds, toll roads issue municipal bonds, universities issue municipal bonds. Um, there's about 50,000 governmental entities that can issue municipal bonds. Mm -hmm. um, they all are tax exempt, which means that if you're an investor, the, you do not pay income taxes on the interest that you receive. And I'm sorry, let me correct that. They're not all tax exempt, but the vast majority are tax exempt. Uh -huh. So there's a big benefit to investors to hold these bonds because there is not an income tax on the interest that you receive. And so therefore, that's the, that's the federal government's way of sort of um, helping along these municipalities, right? Yes, because it's their an effective interest, subsidy. Yeah, yeah. so that would mean that uh, the interest rate that would be paid by a municipal government will be lower than, say, paid by a corporation. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And that should be roughly equal to the tax rate would, that the investor would um, have to pay otherwise, yeah? Yeah, there's, there's a, you can do a tax equivalency rate. So you can say if, if my municipal bond is paying 3%, um, what's the taxable equivalent of that that you would use? You would use your personal tax rate to factor in to figure that out. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and so um, then we talk about you mentioned uh, the number of issuers. So let's talk a little bit about the size of this market. Mm -hmm. um, how big is it uh, relative, let's say, to other markets? Well, last year there was about 475 billion of municipal bonds sold. Um, the size of the total market is about almost four trillion outstanding um, and about 39,000 bonds are traded daily and about 11 billion in par is traded daily. So it's a 
It's a pretty significant. It's a decent sized market. It's a pretty significant market here, and that's just uh, in the U.S., right? That's so just that's, U.S. So yes. that's a pretty significant market. And how does that compare, let's say, to uh, the corporate bond market? The corporate market is bigger, um, bigger in some ways, not as big in terms of the number of issuers. As I said, there's about 50,000 governmental entities that can sell bonds. There's only about 10,000 corporate issuing entities. Um, so there's over a million securities or QCIPs, however you want to define it, that are into the municipal securities market and only about 30,000 corporates. So, so I'm getting a sense, and from my background in the municipal industry as well, I'm sort of getting a sense here of the complexity of this market. So if you're talking about a corporate bond market that's far larger but has far fewer issuers mm -hmm. and far fewer numbers of securities, this seems to me then you're dealing with many more securities in the municipal market and many more issuers, so aren't you dealing with a lot more complexity in terms of how to evaluate them? In, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. So the corporate market, although some of the things are lower, the size of the corporate market itself, the par value sold in the corporate market is much greater than mm -hmm. in the municipal market. Mm -hmm. um, so there's more actual corporate debt outstanding than there is municipal debt, but it is, it's a different kind of structure. There's several big differences between the municipal market and the corporate market, and one of the big ones is that municipal bonds tend to make serial payments. In other words, if you buy a 20-year municipal bond, you get a payment every year, a repayment every year, mm -hmm. whereas corporate debt tends to be mostly in bullet form. So a 20-year corporate debt, you would get one payment at the end of 20 years. I mean, there's mixes and matches within both markets, but, but that's, that's part of the difference between the two markets that accounts for the different numbers of securities is the different maturity structures. Because uh, each, each of those, and, and each of those serial maturities is considered a maturity. Of Correct. Uh -huh. Correct. And isn't that like, um, I know we'll get to the sort of security or safety of this market uh, mm -hmm. relatively, but isn't that uh, the way the serial bond works sort of like, is it sort of like the way a mortgage works? In, in other words, it is. It's, it's, you create this level payment, but over time you have this part of its principle, part of its interest, and over time, correct. is that the same principle at work in a municipal bond? It's very similar, yes. And, and, and unlike, the, the big difference between corporate bonds and municipal bonds is that municipal bonds actually do get paid off. They pay every year, whereas a corporate bond tends to roll over also, uh -huh. so. And, and, and that would mean that you know, in a corporate context, when you get to the maturity date, that corporation either would have to pay for it entirely out of its own proceeds that it has available to pay it off at maturity, or mm -hmm. I guess as you're saying, they're gonna issue more debt, more debt to, re to, pay to it off. repay the old debt. Yeah. And that seems to me to be a, a little bit more of a riskier strategy, let's say, than the municipal strategy of paying it off over time, because don't you have, in the municipal context, then you have some certainty right, uh, about what your payment uh, obligation is going to be that each year. And from a budget perspective, would that be a good thing? Yeah, typically in the muni market, you're a little bit less exposed to the market, market, the new issuance market than you are in the corporate market. But, but really, at the end of the day, you, you get paid off, it's just in, different, in a different manner. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's one of the reasons, I think, why the muni market is tend to be, tend to be, tends to be viewed as more conservative is because you do get paid something every year. Mm -hmm. So you get a little bit back every year and you don't have to worry when the 20 year finally hits. Uh -huh. so. so let's let's talk about conservative, conservativeness. Does mm -hmm. that translate into um, better performance? And by performance, I mean uh, likelihood of getting repaid in this market versus other markets. Yes. Uh, how is that? 
how is that? The general measure for things like that, for repayment risk, is the, is the default rate. Um, and the default rate in the municipal market is much less than it is in the corporate market. Um, it's in the investment grade spectrum, there's all different ways to calculate default risk, but in the investment grade spectrum, it's, um, it's about 10 to one. The corporate default rate is greater than the municipal default rate. And if you bring in below investment grade risk, it's even greater than that. So wow. the default rate for corporates is much higher than for municipals. Right, and so that's, pretty, that's a pretty significant difference. Is that difference um, from your background in the credit rating agencies, is, is that difference borne out in their, in their credit ratings in terms of, generally speaking, are municipalities more highly rated than corporates? Yes, yes they are. Um, yeah. To reflect that likelihood of, of uh, lesser the greater default likelihood rate. Of, right, the right. greater likelihood of, right, the risk of repayment of, is lower. So yeah. very interesting. So let's then turn a little bit more to what goes on in this market. So what, what, what types of projects are funded by municipal bonds? If there's a project that's a public project, it's probably funded by municipal bonds. Um, streets, highways, schools, hospitals, convention centers, universities, um, if, if there's a public project, chances are there's a municipal bond behind it. Uh -huh. And so this would be, and I think um, uh, I've seen statistics that a pretty high proportion of infrastructure that's, um, that's done in the U.S. is done through municipal bonds, right? Yeah, and something like 75% of the infrastructure funding in the United States for government, for local governments, is done through municipal bonds. So that's a, I mean, that's a pretty it's big huge. deal, right? Because yeah. I know we hear a lot today about this state of infrastructure in the United States and the mm -hmm. condition that it's in and the needs that are going to be felt. And so it seems like municipal bonds will be a big part of yes. what needs yes. to they be Yes, they always have done. been and they'll continue to be, uh -huh. yeah. Um, so you mentioned before, I think, um, in your remarks, security structures. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, so I want to talk a little bit more about that in terms of, um, and in, I'm trying to get my head around this notion of the number of securities. So mm -hmm. you mentioned some of it's due to serials and some of it's due to the fact that there's simply a lot more issuers mm -hmm. in the municipal market in the U.S. than there are in the corporate bond market. But can you talk also about security structures? Is that another way that, you know, so if a city issues bonds, they're not all issuing one type of bond? Correct. So, so we use the term municipal bonds, but it covers a really broad range of bond types. Um, so the, probably the easiest one to understand is revenue bonds. So if you have a system, a water and sewer system, and people pay their water bill and pay their sewer bill, that money is used to repay the debt that was used to construct the water and sewer system or the sewer plant or the water lines, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So the revenue bonds, much as the title would suggest, are payable from the revenue source that's associated with the specific project. So you have revenue bonds for water and sewer systems, you have revenue bonds for toll roads, you have revenue bonds for airports. So anything where there's a sort of fee or a yes. charge for the service. Yes, a defined right? stream. That, yep. could be, that could be used then, or is used, you're mm -hmm. saying, to support the bonds issued to, that helped build the infrastructure that yes. was the airport or, the, or yes. the toll road or whatever. Yeah, and those bonds typically have a, a covenant package around them. So you have things like rate covenants, you have tests on whether or not you can sell additional debt, um, you have a flow of funds, the revenues come in and are used first for operations, then for debt service then for additional improvements. So there's a, there's, it, they're more corporate-like mm -hmm. in that there's a specific stream that's used that has covenants wrapped around it. Uh -huh. And that, 
that is the analysis then that's done if you're a potential bondholder for these things. You're doing that analysis of this revenue stream and those covenants to be able to figure out what you yes. think is your likelihood mm -hmm. of getting paid. Yeah. Okay, so that's the revenue supported side. Mm -hmm. So what's the, what are the other types of uh, so, unity bonds so then? <laughs> so tax supported is, the, is, the, is, also, is also very large. And there's many different kinds of taxes that support um, bonds. There's general obligation bonds that are typically payable from property taxes, but in general are paid from all revenues available. Uh -huh. There's sales tax bonds that are payable from sales taxes. There's income tax bonds that are payable from income taxes. Um, there's special tax bonds that are payable from special fees and charges. Um, and then there are special districts that mm -hmm. issue bonds. There's a concept called a utility district or a special district or a park district that issues, that has a very defined service area that's payable from taxes only within that service area. There's special assessment bonds that are paid on the individual, paid by the individual homeowners that benefit from the projects that are financed. Mm -hmm. And there's tax increment financing, which is payable from the incremental value added to the property tax base from the improvements that are financed. Okay, so you mentioned this term general obligation bond. Mm -hmm. So for those unfamiliar with that term, what does it mean to, for when a municipality issues a general obligation bond? It means that your source of repayment is going to be the, a general obligation of the community um, payable from its full faith and credit. So that means then to contrast that with these revenue bonds you were talking about. So in a revenue bond context, there's a specific defined charge or fee. Mm -hmm. That fee gets used, like you said, to support operations and then pay debt service. In the context of a general obligation bond, then the bondholder can't identify a particular service that they're getting their revenues from. So you're saying all the revenues that the mm -hmm. municipality collects then are used potentially to support that bond? Yes. Yep. Uh, okay. And so um, then... And tell me a little bit, I guess, when you said property taxes, I guess property taxes are one of the biggest Primary, revenue yeah, most generators. Most governments are funded primarily by property taxes. And so that property tax would be based on, is it the assessment of the value of the properties in the community? And yes. And they, they set a rate. So is that how governments, so governments try to figure out what that rate needs to be in order to be able to support their operations and debt? Yeah, the basic calculation is that you have your tax base, um, you have an assessed value of your tax base, and you set your tax rate and multiply your tax rate times your tax base, and that gives you your property tax revenues. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty simple calculation, but it's not a simple process. The, the assessment process varies greatly from state to state. Um, even within states, the assessment process varies. For example, in New York City, there's four types for different uh, categories of assessment. In other places, there's one category of assessment. Some states tax personal property, some states tax just property, and obviously the improvements on it. So each, each government has a slightly different twist to the property taxes, but the property tax calculation for most governments in the United States is the, is the primary revenue source. Uh -huh. and, and you also mentioned things like, I think you call them special taxes, mm -hmm. like in income tax and sales mm -hmm. tax. <laughs> so could it be that for some governments, they may collect taxes such as that and they just come into their uh, general funds and are used to pay a general obligation pledge, as opposed to can there be places that take an income tax and say, I'm gonna support a bond solely by my income tax or solely by my sales tax? Yes, and, and New York City is, another good, is a good example of that. Again, for years, New York City sold general obligation bonds, and then at one point they decided they were going to take 
a piece of their income tax and pledge it to a separate bond and a piece of their sales tax and pledge it to a separate bond. So you started with one pool of revenues and then they started to peel things off and pledge them to different bonds. Different cities do it different ways, but yes, it's absolutely possible to have multiple revenue sources. Uh, and does that then sort of make it, just trying to help folks get a handle on it, does that then make it a little bit more like a revenue bond analysis now? If you're buying a sales tax bond, are you still buying the general, you know, the general credit of the city or are you now sort of getting hallmarks of what a revenue bond analysis would look like? It's a little, I don't want to, I'll use the word hybrid, that's not precisely the right term, but it's got most special tax bonds like income tax bonds or sales tax bonds have a covenant package around them. Um, but to the extent that things like the economy underlie your analysis on a property tax bond, obviously the economy underlies your analysis on a sales tax bond also. So they have some security at the very basic level. They have some security provisions akin to revenue bonds, but the credit analysis is probably just more like a property tax analysis. Okay. And then as I'm thinking about um, some ideas here, I, I, I want to just talk a little bit too about one of the things you mentioned, which was tax increment. Mm -hmm. So how does a tax increment bond um, work? So in its simplest form, a tax increment bond is a bond that for a section of a community, so a five block area in a large city mm -hmm. where they want to make certain improvements. So they will sell tax increment financing bonds to finance those improvements. And then the improvements help generate additional development on the property or the other way around. Um, so, as the, so as the value of the property taxes increases in that area, the incremental value that comes from the from the bond financed improvements used to are used to repay the bonds. Okay, so you're really then sort of, I'll use the term capturing, you're capturing that extra incremental growth mm -hmm. and using that those revenues as a result of that growth to pay off the bonds that yes. were issued to support mm -hmm. supposedly whatever caused that growth to occur. Right. Okay. So let's so that's a good segue then to th be thinking about, since we're here at the Henry George School, thinking about some Georgist concepts mm -hmm. of the land value taxation or mm -hmm. land value capture, where land value taxation, as its name indicates, is taxing the value of the land versus land value capture, which would be mechanisms to capture the increase in land values mm -hmm. as a result of you know, public projects to improve uh, a community. So, Based on the background you talked about, how close or not close does the way the municipal finance world work in the U.S. come to utilizing notions of land value taxation or land value capture? Well, for the most part, I would say probably not. I mean, there's been communities, around, a couple of few communities in Pennsylvania, for example, that have used it. Um, the other example, let me just jump back for one second. Um, you mentioned the tax increment. The special assessment bonds are also similar special assessment bond is issued so for example if you and I live inside the city limits but not attached to the city sewer system or water system we have wells or septic then if the city decides to expand into that area they would charge us for what it cost us to bring the service to our homes so mm -hmm. we would get a direct benefit from having the lines come to us and we ourselves would pay for that benefit that's not a benefit that's levied on the entirety of the city uh -huh. or a tax that's levied on the entirety of the city so it's a specific homeowner charge for a 
uh, a service that's beneficial only to that homeowner. And, and do homeowners in that case, in contrast to some other taxes, do they have a say in whether that tax is, is, is uh, implemented on them? It depends on what it's for. Obviously, if you're expanding your water and sewer system, chances are if there's four people on this side of me and four people on that side of me, and I, chances are I can't say, no, just skip me for the water and sewer. You can put those four on, you can put those four on, you can skip me. But in some places, if, it's a, if, it's, if I want to, um, in some places I can do it. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on the specific situation. Okay. So then going so, back to, to land value that, taxation, yeah. so, but you said the cornerstone of what, at least for tax-supported debt in the U.S., is the property tax. So Correct. And in both of those examples, it is a property tax that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's the, it's the, those are two cases where the land, where the benefit is specifically from, is specifically captured from the project or, or vice versa. Uh -huh. So it's, it's not just a sweeping tax. We're going we're gonna to build a new school and put this, make everybody pay for it. It's we're going to do something that's specific to you or specific to this block or specific to this five block area uh -huh. and therefore you're going to pay a different tax rate than everybody else pays but it is still just a property tax and and so then i guess what you're saying is that sort of this notion of capture in other words that they're they're capturing mm -hmm. uh, that value in the tax increment case or even even arguably in the special assessment case where there's some cost to these improvements, and now we're, yeah. we're capturing that and then using that to pay, Correct. Uh, using the revenues then to pay for those improvements. Yeah, exactly. But in the, I guess, but in the property tax example, I guess there's somewhat of a difference, right, between property taxes uh, and land taxes. Yes, a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> a very big difference. I mean, the property taxes are the entirety of what, it's the land and the value of what's on the land. So. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you, so the, the capture that comes from the special assessment or the tax increment is, is the entirety of the property tax. It's not, it's not just a land capture. It's and so for most places in the U.S., it's, it's property taxes, right? Correct. So, so for that property tax payer, mm -hmm. do they even get to know what percentage of what they're paying is due to the value of their land versus the value of the improvements on the land? Probably not. I'm thinking in my own house. Um, no, I don't think I know what my land is worth. <laughs> um, so, so that would be, so therein lies a, a pretty significant a difference, big difference, difference, right? Yeah. So this idea of land value ta taxation, I guess in the U.S. we are taxing the value of the land, but we're taxing way more than the proper value of the yes, land. We're taxing absolutely. the improvements on, yeah. on the land. And yeah. so that might be a, a, a challenge, yes, to be able to, um, to be able to, or how much of a challenge would it to be change? in your to to go to a world where we say, okay, it's not the property tax. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't be taxing the value of those improvements because those improvements are good. It should be all in the value of the land. Or maybe make a differentiation in the rate that's charged for yeah. each of those things. How how big a effort would that be to try to try to do that in the U.S.? I, I don't know that I have the words to explain how big of an effort that that would be. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, I mean, right now you have property taxes and you have assessments and you have assessors and you have periodic revaluations and all of those are, property taxes are near and dear to people's hearts. I mean, that's what, if you're a homeowner, 
that one of the first questions you ask when you go to buy a house is, well, what are the property taxes on the house? So anytime you want to raise your property tax rate, if you even can, some states don't allow property taxes to be raised, they have caps on them, mm -hmm. um, or you want to do a reassessment, <clears throat> it ends up being a very big deal for the, for the political base, for the homeowners and the residents. Um, you really can't overstate how hard it is to make significant changes to the tax structure. So to go back and try and change the entire basis for government financing would be incredibly difficult. I mean, as it is, my personal feeling is that most people don't understand how governments work, don't really know where their taxes go, don't really understand when they say, but I want a new park, that somebody's got to pay to have that park built. So to the extent that you sort of lack a general understanding of how governments work, trying to go from a property tax base to a land value capture mm -hmm. would be really, really, really hard. Yeah, and, 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 of course, and of course there's, as we were talking about, there, there are several ways you could do it. I mean, I guess this idea of um, going to a, from a property tax to a land value tax, or as we've, as you were mentioning, I think these, some places in Pennsylvania have this mm -hmm. notion of a split rate tax, mm -hmm. where they actually have different rates and presumably different valuations for the land versus the improvements on the land, right? Yeah. So even something like that, though, would probably be viewed um, as skeptically by many property taxpayers? I would assume so. And, and I mean, there's also places like New York City again, um, or Nassau County in New York, where there's different categories of property tax, but again, that's different categories of property tax. So residential is one type, commercial is another type, but again, that's property tax, not, not it's not a split tax, it's a different, if it's, it's just a different um, category of property taxes. And that would be, um, that would be incentive, I mean, and I guess there would be this notion of if you, um, if you have, and I think the places that have done this split rate tax have a higher tax rate on the land than they do on the improvements on the land, the, with the idea being to incentivize, right, development. And, and if that worked in theory, could that actually be a benefit for these governments in terms of their credit quality? Um, I, that's a big if. <laughs> it's, I suppose, I mean, anything's possible. Um, it's hard for me to wrap my head around how it would actually get done. Uh -huh. um, we were talking earlier when you think about an example, when you think about New York City where it's so vertical, how you generate the same amount of revenues from just a land tax than from a full property tax, um, the land tax would have to be extraordinarily high. I mean, it could, in theory, you'd, you'd want to end up with the same level of revenues, but the burden would shift so dramatically to the landowners, it would be, it would be really hard, I think. Yeah, and I, but I think it yeah. is, again, talking theoretically, right, if, if it were such that this, this land tax did incentivize landowners to put their land to its highest and best use, mm -hmm. um, could you, I guess a, a government could benefit from, let's say, the economic activity that would result from their, th those lands being used and the jobs and that would be created and the economic activity, right? In theory, uh -huh. in theory. Uh -huh. So, um, but I guess it's, we're still gonna run up against those implementation um, yes. issues, right? Yes. Which I guess what you were saying before from the- Public from understanding the, being the biggest of all. So from the individual, <laughs> so I guess there's a, there's a difficulty from the point of view of the governments who would have to actually go and reassess 
land individually, which yeah. presumably they could do, but would, yeah. would be quite an undertaking to be able to do. It would be quite an undertaking, and if you think about just the, the logistics of the implementation, most county executive, mayoral terms, gubernatorial terms are four years. Um, some states now obviously have term limits. Um, to be able to get it all done within one politician's term would be enormous. I can't imagine what kind of an undertaking it would be. So this, if he got voted out because of what he was doing, then the, I mean, it would roll back. I mean, it's just, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around yeah. the idea of making that kind of a change. Yeah, I can see. And, and, yeah. then, and, that's, and that, then you're really reverting to the other big challenge, right, which was convincing the individuals, the property taxpayers, yeah. that this is in fact a good thing. Exactly. And, and I could imagine. And then getting them to go vote for the person again after right. they've started to do it. We have, we have a pretty robust, um, robust industry in the U.S. of people who challenge their assessments, yes. right? So yes. very often, and that's just uh, using one, one value assessment. Yeah. And, and yeah. now if we even contemplate a split rate, now we're going to have potentially yeah. twice as many yeah, assessments going. The value of the building yeah. and then the value of the land. Yeah. So I, I can see the challenges presented yeah. um, from doing something like this. So, but let's think about it in terms of what we were talking about before, tax supported. And I want to mm -hmm. now turn to some sort of changes that have been going on in the municipal market recently mm -hmm. that may um, represent some emerging issues for us to consider. Um, but as a start, I want to talk to you about, you mentioned the general obligation pledge, the safety um, of municipal bonds in general. Can you talk to me a little bit about what has been the perceived safety of that general obligation pledge historically? Yeah, though I would take issue with your use of the word perceived. It's not perceived safety, it's an actual safety. I mean, as uh -huh. I said, the default rates are very low. Um, those default rates that I mentioned um, include more speculative type municipal bonds, like some of the specialized assessment districts, like what's called dirt bonds, like housing projects. Governments, even now, although there have been some very high profile stress conditions and bankruptcies, governments for the most part do not file for bankruptcy and or default on their bonds. So for years and years, the municipal market has been viewed as a real safe harbor for money, for, for investors. Mm -hmm. um, for years and years, retail investors were a huge part of the market um, because you could buy a municipal bond and sleep at sleep at night. You know, it was the widows and orphans investment of choice. So, um, so and, and on top of that, they got a tax exemption. Exactly. As well. so, yeah. So yeah. not only did they have a yeah, although I don't know that security, the orphans needed the tax exemption, but but they got it. Anyway. Yeah, they got it anyway. And, but they so, certainly got it. And so these retail investors would be really buy and hold type of investors, yes. right? They're not in yes. and out trading these no. bonds every day, right? No. So, so that's changed a little bit. Um, the market shifted a little bit for a bunch of different reasons, but. And there have been, in the last few years, there have been some fairly high profile mm -hmm. bankruptcies. Um, so stick a pin in that and take one step back for a second. Bankruptcy law is federal law. Um, municipalities file under chapter nine, not seven or 11, because you can't reorganize a municipality the way you can a corporation. Uh -huh. You don't, it's not something you can't, you can't start, you can't, it's just very different. Um, so, and not all states allow bankruptcy filing. So even uh -huh. though it's a federal bankruptcy code, the authority for who can actually file is at the state level. So about half the states don't allow governments to file for bankruptcy. That, that's interesting, I mean, because we, we've certainly heard, and I guess we'll talk some more about these sort of high profile cases of bankruptcy. So right. not everybody 
uh, not all governments can file for bankruptcy. So what would happen to a government that was in a state that didn't allow it to file for bankruptcy? Well, Could it get into the same type of trouble? Yes, because there's a difference between bankruptcy and default. And default means you don't pay. In bankruptcy, there's, there's, it's, they're both situations of stress. Mm -hmm. um, bankruptcy for governments lets you make a decision, lets the court make a decision about who's going to get paid how much. Um, and in Detroit, the big one, obviously, that's happened. Um, almost everybody involved took some sort of a haircut. Bondholders took a much larger haircut than they expected to. Um, pensioners took a small haircut. It was the the pain wasn't shared equally, but there was pain almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely possible for governments to default without filing. Um, in which case, you really are just talking about a resource allocation, which could mean something like a restructuring of debt. It right? could be I mean, a restructuring of debt. It could be raising taxes. It could be any number of things. I mean, the big bankruptcy from 25 years ago was Orange County, California, which which filed not so much because they ran out of resources the way Detroit did. It was more of a strategic filing. Um, and there the bondholders got paid back a lot more than the bondholders in Detroit did. There was more resources to pay the bondholders back. Okay, so, so these recent cases of bankruptcy, and I think there had been some in California, mm -hmm. Stockton, San Bernardino, you mentioned mm -hmm. Detroit. Um, so in these cases now that have gone to the bankruptcy court where there's been, you know, a pretty significant amount of debt. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned sort of the recoveries. So mm -hmm. these recoveries have been um, much lower than they were before? Well, there's almost a no before to compare to, but they've been lower than anybody who thought about it thought they would be, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, and we, we're just so to make clear, recovery means how much the bondholder gets after everything is settled out. Uh -huh. So instead of getting 100 cents on the dollar, you might get 80 cents, you might get 40 cents, you might get 12 cents, depending on the settlement from the bankruptcy court. And so that would mean of their principal, right? So you're yes. talking about a percentage of their principal, and then, of course, mm -hmm. there's the associated interest to that principal. Yeah. That recovery is based on their principal. Yeah. Um, and so these court decisions and then these recoveries then how did some mar market participants uh, interpret that? Were they a little bit concerned by what these results were yielding? In other words, no, they're just mad as hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think you know, for years and years, there was no bankruptcies or very few defaults, almost no bankruptcies, and very few defaults. So when all of a sudden things has started to happen, and they found out they weren't going to get what they thought they were going to get they were extraordinarily stunned and even more extraordinarily unhappy. So yeah, uh -huh. it's, it's a big deal for a municipal bondholder to not get all their money back. So yeah, so, so then that concern, those, those buy and hold investors who thought they were, now, um, now again, pointing out that these are still relatively isolated cases, but, mm -hmm. but nonetheless high profile ones. Mm -hmm. And so um, did, how do investors then respond to that? in terms of, okay, now I've seen some cases where the, the recoveries haven't been so good. Do they get concerned then that there could be other potential future cases out there? You know, the beauty market's like any other market. Credit quality is just one factor that you look at. Um, it's certainly fair to say that credit quality in governments is, is, is evolving. Um, you know, you go through economic cycles and governments bring in more money um, and then you go through another economic cycle and things get a little bit tighter. But we're also coming to the point where decisions that were made 15 or 20 years ago 
about whether to repair a bridge or whether to, instead of giving your employees a raise, they kicked up their pension payment, things like that are sort of coming home to roost finally. So over the next, into the foreseeable future, there's definitely going to be issues where the governments are going to have to decide whether to raise revenues, whether to cut services, whether to try and renegotiate contracts, whether to default, whether to file for bankruptcy if they can. Um, there's definitely crowding out issues that are here today and will continue far into the future because decisions, unpopular, very difficult decisions need to be made. Uh -huh. So uh, effectively what I hear you saying is, sort of, at least for certain municipalities, that the future is now. In other words, those decisions that were made years and years ago, now they're going to have to deal with, they're dealing with the yeah. ramifications of those decisions. Yeah. And I think we've certainly heard a lot, right, about um, pension obligations mm -hmm. or retiree health care mm -hmm. obligations as being pretty sizable. And mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about infrastructure before, and you hear, as you talked about, you know, deferred infrastructure costs. So I guess the market maybe is trying to digest how big a concern should this be and how widespread should it be in the in the marketplace is that right it is but i think it's also important to remember that you have the municipal market you have the corporate market you have the structured market you have the government market and then you have international markets so among all of those markets the municipal market still probably has the among the highest rated credits and is still perceived to be among the safest of the markets it's just incrementally not quite as safe as it has been but compared to other things it's still head and shoulders above yeah so but i guess folks do operate in the, uh, in the environment in which they operate in, right? So I guess as you're saying as a relative measure, yeah. things pro may not seem so bad, but of course, if you're the municipal bond investor who is heavily into municipal bonds, then you have to now consider how you view... You have to think about it, but in terms of your resource allocation, you have to think about where, you, where you're willing to put your risk. Mm -hmm. And what are, what are other things that, that, um, that uh, um, investors have been doing in terms of has there been a shift in terms of the types of bonds that they're they're more or less willing to hold it's you know it's a little bit hard to say because the data doesn't come out that often I mean the Fed tracks investors tracks bond ownership um, and there has been a shift from it and it depends on how you define retail because if you put retail if you include um, what's called separately managed accounts, uh -huh. SMAs, that's retail, there's a lot of municipal bonds. So the, where the money is going has shifted a little bit mm -hmm. out of mom and pop or the widows and orphans, um, but it's still significantly in retail hands. And what about the types of bonds that are being invested in? Are, are certain, because you, know, you hear about, um, you, know, the, you mentioned the bankruptcy code, and you hear mm -hmm. about this notion of special revenues under the bankruptcy code. I'm wondering maybe if you could address what that is in terms of, and does that make a particular type of bond perhaps more desirable? If, again, For if you some have people a certain view. It might. For some people it might. They might prefer special you know, bonds that they view as better protected at this point. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's been some high-profile issuers who have tried to sell bonds that have had failed sales, needed to restructure and come back. But it's not it's it's pretty it's not at all routine for an issuer to come into the market and be unable to sell their bonds. And yeah, so there's a price so, at which they're able to yeah. sell them in an interest rate. And I just want to just just to co to complete the thought about the bankruptcy code. So this mm -hmm. notion of special revenues, mm -hmm. these 
that's a term under the bankruptcy code and, mm -hmm. and, and, and it relates, is that right, to revenues that are pledged for a specific purpose that the municipality can't really get their hands on, is that right? So sort of, that would be more of a revenue bond type of structure than it would be a tax supported type of structure, is that right? It would be, but I'm a, I'm a little reluctant to say it's 100% protected just because there's not that many bankruptcies yet and not still a lot of case law mm -hmm. to look to. Yeah, I, and, so. I think, and I think that's maybe one of the things that the, wherever you sit in the municipal market, if you're considering investing in municipal bonds, you, you have to come you to, to think a, about, you yeah. need to come to a view about that. And, yes. and I think the view is by no means uniform, right, yeah. across the market as to whether, uh, for some investors, maybe revenue bonds become more attractive because if they are of the belief, right, that, that these, these would be protected and, and therefore I can isolate myself from one less risk, which would be the insolvency, let's say, of the city that issued the bonds that, that are su supported by the, maybe the water sewer enterprise of that city. Is that right? Yeah, I would, I would sort of take what you just said and put it a little bit differently, and that is that for years and years there was this municipal bond market, it was very safe, it was very large, large, large enough, not, not as large obviously as the corporate market, but it was good sized, successful sales, and people thought about it, but they didn't think about it that much. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, they're starting to think about it a little more aggressively than they have in the past. Uh -huh. And some other things too that I think, um, that I've heard of, of being contemplated, so we have this notion of, okay, the revenue bonds, mm -hmm. but um, are places actually thinking about uh, ways to protect or get bondholders more interested in buying their debt by trying to secure them from, from risk? And I'm thinking about the city of Chicago recently issued, and I know other cities are doing similar types of things where they sort of securitize. First of all, mm -hmm. can you describe what that, what that is and what, what it, in simple terms, and what it, what it hopes to achieve? So basically what securitization, the goal of securitization is to take a piece, a defined revenue source um, or asset, because it's usually called asset securitization, mm -hmm. and protect it from bankruptcy. So securitizations, are the most famous securitizations obviously are the residential mortgage-backed securitizations. Uh -huh. um, so there's all sorts of asset-backed securitizations, but over the last... 20 years now almost, some governments have decided to go to the securitization route with some of their securities. New York City has securitized some of its income tax, its income tax flow. Mm -hmm. um, so you take a revenue stream, you put a whole bunch of provision, legal provisions around it that protect it from bankruptcy or other events, mm -hmm. um, and you separate that money with a separate holder, a separate servicer, a separate everything so that you, the city in no way, shape, or form can get its hands on it. Um, so yes, yeah, some, some of the more particularly larger issues have decided to try and securitize some of their revenue streams to take some of the, to give themselves lower interest rates that they have to pay. Yeah, but that, that, doesn't, that doesn't eliminate all of the risks of, uh, of that bond. In other words, that um, what I guess they're trying to insulate is sort of the general bankruptcy risk of, mm -hmm. uh, let's say, a municipality, but still there's, whatever the revenue source that's pledged. Yeah, there's still basic credit risk. I mean, on a resident and an RMBS, if the homeowner doesn't pay their mortgage, you've still got a problem. Or if a sales right. tax is securitized 
and all the retail sales disappear, you've still got a, you've still got a basic and credit And I guess problem. that's, a, that's yeah. a good analogy to make, because obviously everybody knows the difficulty that those residential mortgage backed securities had. But it wasn't because of the insolvency of the, of the entities that placed those mortgages in. It was more about the performance of Correct. those mortgages. So Correct. in the case yeah. of a municipal bond and similar, it's okay, the municipality never went bankrupt, but there's still the risk that the underlying security right. source right. doesn't generate enough revenue to be able to pay off the bondholders. Right. Okay, and so, and also, has there been then, in addition, which I guess we've sort of alluded to, uh, but we'll talk about it directly, sort of a, just a more of a concern or awareness of the general trajectory of credit quality in the municipal space because of these you know, because of the reality of these bankruptcies and then the concerns about whether it's pensions or infrastructure, has there been sort of a, a greater focus on that as a result? Well, I think so, and that was, the, that was the point I was making when I said, you know, it used to be just do it, just go buy some munis, whatever they are, you know, it, it, that's, that's, those days are gone. I mean, everybody now is paying more attention to what's actually going on within the individual credits. Um, also, before the financial crisis, there was and there's still to this day, there's a concept of called bond insurance, uh -huh. which is an insurance company that's created that provides an insurance policy wrapped around the repayment of the principal and interest on the bonds. That had been over 50% of the over 50% of the municipal bonds issued before the financial crisis had had some sort of bond insurance on them. It, it lowered the rates. Um, but so this the, would but be the like economics a, worked. Yeah. So this would be so just to m make sure our viewers understand, this would be something where in addition to the municipality repaying. So right, there was an insurance oh, policy on it to make sure it repaid. So only if the, right. if the underlying municipality was unable to pay, then there was this insurer sitting there yep. saying, okay, if they don't pay, yep. we'll pay. It was a backup, exactly. And those were highly rated companies. They were very highly rated. And so then this they, would, this would credit deteriorated with uh -huh. the financial crisis. And now it's a much smaller percentage of the market. I think it's about 20%, maybe 25, maybe less, but think, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure what it is right now. But so now, so then before, whereas mm -hmm. if you were a, let's call it a casual investor of mm -hmm. municipal bonds, you could say, all right, I'll enter into it because I know these companies, they're very highly rated right. and I don't really have to dig right. much deeper than that. And now I guess in today's environment, without the benefit of those insurance companies existing, now we go back to what you were we were talking about at the beginning, that this is, a to look very, this yeah. is a very large and <laughs> idiosyncratic market with a lot of different security structures. You really have to now sort of get a better understanding and then on top of that, get your assessment of these various types of risks that are existing yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so do you think that these, um, these events make it easier, or I think I know your answer, easier or harder to consider changes to a world of land value taxation when, because that would be tax supported debt, right? It's, it's still tax supported, right? So to yeah. the extent that tax supported um, debt is viewed favorably or not favorably, does it make it harder to contemplate that sort of shift? Honestly, forgetting about credit, forgetting about all the potential issues, you know, pension liability, all the issues facing government infrastructure, all the governments facing governments right now, the, the, the implementation and the psychological component of changing the most fundamental of tax structures is still sort of mind boggling to me. I mean, every once in a while, someone will say, oh, let's go from an income tax to a value added tax here in the United States. And, Everybody gets all excited, and it just 
it's it's mm -hmm. you, you know we've been doing things the same way for so long it would be very hard to change it doesn't mean it wouldn't be the right thing to try it uh -huh. um, and if there was a way to find it if there was a if you could find a place to try it in sort of like these Pennsylvania cities did I mean it would be a really interesting experiment but I would say that the likelihood of every government in the United States converting from a property tax-based system to yeah. something different is pretty remote uh -huh. but it, but in addition to that real reality that you're talking about, they, they would be considered tax-supported debt, right? So all of these issues that now that we're having around difficulties that governments have to fund the Yeah, it would the change the revenue side. It wouldn't change the expense side. Mm -hmm. So so they would still have to yeah. deal with that. And so again, those same issues of, yeah. you know, hey, if you believe that, yeah. you know, if you're of the view that tax-supported bonds are, are somehow weakening and maybe you need to be compensated more, right, for to be able to hold those bonds and maybe interest rates would go up or yeah. if you really thought that there was a, you know, a, a real lot of stress coming coming down the pike, maybe then the, the desirability of tax supported debt um, would be um, would be come into question, right? But I guess I don't it's- think it's, I don't think we're there yet. But it's still, yeah. but I guess what we're saying before is it's still, I guess, are we still in a world where it remains to be seen in terms of what's going to happen or how these municipalities react, as we talked about before, to their, to their situations. Well, as I said, I'm not ready to write off the municipal bond market. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not happening. In uh -huh. terms of, if, if I have money to invest, I need to sit and think about my risk profile, and I need to sit back and say, okay, where if I'm risk averse, where's the best place for me to put my money? And municipals is going to remain one of those places. But that doesn't, but from a practical standpoint, as an investor, you need to be an educated investor. Mm -hmm. And I know we're going off topic a little bit here, but you need uh -huh. to be an educated investor and you need to think about what you're actually purchasing. And what you're purchasing today when you buy a municipal bond is a little bit different than what it was 20 or 30 years ago when you bought a municipal bond. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess it's part of the challenge is that um, these cases, uh, as few as they've been, may continue to be relatively not widespread, right? So, yeah, I don't so expect the, massive bankruptcy. So then the concern, the then the issue is, uh, you know, as a, as a holder being considered that, I mean, it's, it's, you've got to do your homework, right? If you want to yeah. feel even more comfortable that the type of bond that I'm buying is not going to be the type of bond that's going to come into these struggles, yeah. right? And so that, is it, so then I guess it, in sort of the, to wind up, is it, does it sort of, I guess it depends at least in terms of what we're talking about with tax-supported debt, sort of on the choices that governments make, right? To, yeah. Over time, I guess what we're saying from a historical basis, governments in the U.S. have been very conservative. Mm -hmm. They've managed themselves well. They've made decisions that, that have helped to preserve credit quality over time. That as long as they continue to do that, then this market should keep humming along fine, right? Or is it, as opposed to a world where we have additional cases of high profile stress where uh, the concern will grow, right? That, hey, municipalities are finding <coughs> themselves in situations where they can't really manage their way out of it. There will be some of each. There will be places that, that are, have more and more trouble managing. Um, and there will also be places that figure it out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you um, so You're much. Welcome. I appreciate it, Colleen, <laughs> uh, all of your insights. And and that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. 
it goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.